I'm Apollo 16 astronaut Charlie Duke, the 10th man to walk on the moon. And you got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. This is the Space Show, Australia, on 88.3 Southern FM. Welcome to the Space Show, presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. Hello, I am Andrew Rennie. And on this evening's The Space Show, Nothing So Hidden, Episode 2 of 3, The Voyage of Apollo 16. Now, if you are one of those people who keep a list of all the astronauts that have been in space, well, as of an hour ago, pretty much exactly an hour ago, you have got two more names to add to your list of people who have never been in space before but are now in space. Yes, at about, um, just around about 10 to 6 this evening, a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket launched the Crew Dragon spacecraft into orbit to catch up to the International Space Station, which they will do uh, sometime tomorrow. And there are four people on board. Two have been in space before and two are newbies. And of note, at the launch site to watch that launch was an astronaut who's walked on the moon, a geologist no less. And a newbie on the spacecraft was a geologist as well, so there's a connection there. Yes, Harrison Smith was there at the Kennedy Space Center to watch the launch of the rocket. Well, time now to go to episode two of our Nothing So Hidden. Welcome to part two of our three-part series, Nothing So Hidden, the story of Apollo 16. Fifty years ago today, the trio of astronauts were falling toward Earth on their homeward trip from the moon. On last week's program, we heard, in the astronauts' own words, their account of the journey to the moon, of their delayed descent to the Descartes region, and the beginning of their first moonwalk. This evening we pick up the story as their extravehicular activity enters a new phase, the setting up and use of the lunar roving vehicle. Now this account is as told to the space show in the studios of Southern FM by Charlie Duke 
in 2014 and a lecture recording we made in Canberra in 1994 of John Young. Now this is supplemented by the in-flight press conference the trio gave whilst on their return flight from the moon. I'll be about to get you in my old moon buggy We will find the crater where we start getting hucky And up there by the light of the good old earth We'll love it up like everything for all that we'll work To extend the range the astronauts could go from their lunar module to collect geological samples, Apollo's 15, 16 and 17 used a dune buggy type car known as the Lunar Roving Vehicle, or LRV. Now, Young was asked about how it was carried to the moon and how it was deployed. Well, Charlie Duke and I uh, worked on that. We originally thought we were going to have the lunar module first, but the Apollo 15 guys got it when they cut one of the missions out. And it was all automatic at first, and it was on the side of the lunar rover, and you pull this wire, and that thing fell off and lay in front of you in a big heap. (laughs) And nothing happened because the automatic system didn't work. So we had to make it semi-manual where you pull a few ropes, and this part comes down, and then you attach this thing, it unfolds like a big jeep. It's sort of like a card table that unfolds, only it's got, instead of legs coming out, it's got wheels coming out. You slap them into place and put it all together. And I'm sorry that there's no television that ever been recorded because the thing is, you've got to get the lunar uh, rover all put together and then put the television on, on it for, for the thing to work. And uh, that's why. But it is kind of like watching a card table unfold to see to see that thing, and, uh, and sometimes it doesn't unfold too good. I, I mean, John Young also described the lunar roving vehicle. We had a lunar rover on the moon. It's a phenomenal vehicle. It's battery powered. Two different sets of batteries. Each while, each wheel was individually uh, powered, so that you could lose. Uh, you could lose three out of four wheels being powered and still keep right on driving. The vehicle was very reliable. The tires were made out of piano wire. They, they couldn't even leak. Now the handle in that vehicle has forward, backwards, stop, left, right, set the brake, set the parking brake, all in the same handle. And today, that handle is being used in the United States as a, what we call a space spinoff. It will allow very disabled people to drive safely on the freeways. I helped the Marshall Space Flight guys build that handle, and I'm very proud of that contribution. The good old lunar rover was very exciting to drive because it would do, uh, we set the world speed record on the moon, believe it or not. <laughs> B- believe it or not, it was 10 kilometers an hour. <laughs> That's about as fast as we dared drive in that sliding, bouncing rover. And when you drove more than five or six kilometers an hour and cut the wheels too hard, it'd slide out or go backwards just like driving on ice. And what saved me and Charlie was that we knew nobody was coming down that road from the other direction. (laughs) 
Well, Melbourne hosts a Grand Prix motor race in Albert Park. Well, there's only been one Grand Prix on the moon. John Young was the only driver, and Charlie Duke was the official race commentator. That's all, Mark. That max acceleration? No. Man, you are really bouncing. Is he on the ground at all? That's 10 kilometers. Huh? He's got about two wheels on the ground. He's a big rooster tail out of all four wheels. And as he turns, he skids. The back end breaks loose just like on snow. Come on back, John. Hey, the deck is running. Man, I'll tell you, Andy's never seen a driver like this. Hey, when he hits the craters and starts bouncing is when he gets his rooster tail. He makes sharp turns. Hey, that was a good stop. Those wheels just locked. Mark off. The actual first circuit was somewhat longer than the 36 seconds I've played here because I've edited out periods of static. As I've already noted, the Apollo 16 crew were not very talkative. We often see pictures of... um John Young test driving the rover on the moon. And I've always thought that was a bit of a silly thing to do before you'd done the traverses, the three three traverses you did. Because well, if you'd wrecked the thing then, you'd yeah, have been Well, <laughs> it turns out it was uh, that, uh, we call that the Grand Prix. And that was part of a, 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 a an actual test of the lunar module, uh, the lunar rover, uh, that we had scheduled. It wasn't just an off-the-cuff, you know. Hey, let's do this, John. You now we. It was all. It was all uh, written into the flight plan exactly what he would do, and uh, and it was actually after the first EVA. I mean, not after the first EVA, but we'd already done a geology out to Plum Crater, and we're coming back, and it was the end of our first EVA when we had this schedule. And so uh, I got off, and I got the camera, the movie camera, and I said, okay, John, let's do the Grand Prix. And so he starts driving off, and, and I remember he drove towards the lunar module, and I said, uh, okay, give me a sharp turn left, and uh, which was part of the flight plan. And he, he said, I don't want to do a sharp turn. I said, come on, John, give me one. Okay, here's a sharpie, he said. And he did a 180 degrees, and the thing's bouncing like crazy. He's probably going... Uh, doesn't sound like it's fast, but on the moon it was fast, like six, seven kilometers an hour, and uh, and it was bouncing, and you can see that in the in the in the movie that I took. So it was scheduled, and I don't think we ever had a, a opportunity to wreck it, but uh, you know something could have happened to the steering and something like that, and then we'd have been down to one system, and that would have. Uh, taken away our uh, uh, some of our mobility, if you will, on the subsequent EVAs. And this reply prompted me to ask about extravehicular activity contingencies. Because you had contingencies to walk if the yeah. rover didn't work. Yeah, we had a we had a uh, we had a uh, an EVA walking EVA uh, that was on the maps. If we the car broke down or didn't work as we started out. And we also had a one one man EVA plan. If somebody's suit failed to check, mm-hmm. uh, he would stay in the uh in the lunar module and only one person would go out. 
and we had that all worked out. But fortunately, nobody ever had to do it. Um, uh, so uh, there was a lot of planning went into went into all these contingencies, and uh, you know, what if this, what if that. And Young did a second Grand Prix lap. Okay, you could have gone the other way. Go ahead. There's a big crater there, though, aren't there? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. One of those holes. They want four minutes worth, John. Well, it's a minute and five. Then you can do it twice more. Surely. Okay, turn sharp. <laughs> I have no desire to turn sharp. <laughs> okay, here's a sharpie. Hey, that's great. Man, those things. When, it, when those wheels really dig in, Don, John, when you turn, it's when you get the rooster tail. The suspension uh, system on that thing is fantastic. That yeah. sounds good. Uh, we sound like we've probably got enough of the Grand Prix. We're willing to let you go on from here. Call out a Grand Prix. Okay. And that was all four wheels off the ground there. Okay, max style. Lunar dust is made of fine particles of sharp-edged rock. It clung to everything. This brush here in the foreground was used to wipe each other off. Uh, the, lunar, the lunar dust is very, very sharp edged because it all comes from impacts. It's not rounded like sand at all. So when you brush it on your suit and you brush it off with a brush, it just digs in further and uh, takes more than one washing to get it out of there. Another incident happened when John Young tripped over a data cable laying across the lunar surface and inadvertently tore it out of the heat flow electronics package. Could it be repaired? Question 5. The heat flow experiment you broke was successfully fixed in simulation, although it was complicated and took a great deal of time. Do you think you should have tried to fix it or do what you did? I don't think we're qualified to make that decision made by uh, people on the ground are far more qualified to do that sort of thing than we are. If, if uh, we had been told to do that, we would certainly have done it. Would you like to have been informed of the successful simulation and the trade-off factors involved? I, I still don't think that that's our decision-making process up there on the surface. And so the astronauts finished their first moonwalk. Now, this had begun at 2.54 a.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time when the 26-metre dish at Madrid was tracking, and it lasted seven hours. The rover had been driven 4.2 kilometres in a time of 2 hours and 11 minutes. Well, back inside the lunar module, the crew had their meal and they went to sleep. And they slept from 3 p.m. until 11 p.m. And before retiring, Young was confiding in Duke a gastric problem he was having. Unfortunately, his microphone was on and his confidential confession was broadcast to the world. Well, of course, the press was onto this in a flash. Apollo 16, the questions in this press conference have been prepared by newsmen covering the flight here at the Manned Spacecraft Center. I'm going to read them to you exactly as worded by the newsmen and in a priority specified by them. Question number one for John Young. A couple of times you were on hot mic and didn't know it, but how could a nice Florida boy like you say what you did about citrus fruit? That's a very good question. 
Wait till you drink it day and night for two weeks and, and, and uh, let me know what you think. And for lunch, too. I have an orange grove down in Florida, too, so uh, I do like citrus, but uh, citrus drinks are something else. Rod Reimers explains what the comment was about. Stories about human spaceflight are usually full of heroism, math, and the triumph of human ingenuity over incredible odds. The story of how an astronaut got the farts on Apollo 16 is no exception. It all started on the Apollo 15 mission, which landed on the moon in 1971. The mission was successful, but while they were in space, the astronauts experienced some arrhythmia, or irregular beating of the heart. Arrhythmia can signal all kinds of serious cardiovascular problems, like heart attack and stroke. So even though the astronauts made it back just fine, NASA very much wanted to make sure that astronauts on future missions avoided arrhythmia while they were in space, where humans have yet to establish solid healthcare infrastructure. So NASA physicians did some blood work on the Apollo 15 crew when they returned to Earth and found that they had too little potassium in their systems, a condition called hypokalemia. Potassium is super important for your heart because it's a major part of nerve cell function and your nervous system is what controls your heartbeat. Specifically, potassium is used in the sodium-potassium pump, which is found in all kinds of cells, including those in every part of the nervous system. An enzyme separates out the sodium and potassium on either side of a nerve cell's membrane, building up voltage across the cell surface. For carefully timed bursts of cellular activity, you usually want the cell's membrane to reach a particular voltage before firing, called the action potential. Once you hit that voltage, the cell fires. Otherwise, it just waits for the voltage to build up again. A network of nerve cells throughout the heart rely on the sodium-potassium pump, among other cell signaling pathways, to time your heartbeat. If components of that system fall out of whack, like if you aren't getting enough potassium, your heartbeat can get off kilter. So be sure to eat your bananas, friends. But back to our astronauts. To keep the Apollo 16 astronauts safe from the arrhythmia experienced by the Apollo 15 crew, NASA prescribed a ton of potassium. Not enough to mess up the sodium-potassium pump in the other direction, but still a whole bunch. Potassium is typically very bitter, so it needs to be dissolved into something with a lot of flavor. NASA decided to use lots of citrus drinks. The crew had various citrus-flavored rehydratable drinks that they had to drink every day, multiple times a day. As you can probably imagine, the astronauts got really tired of this. And the diet had some physical downsides, which we know because NASA records all its communication with astronauts and makes the transcripts publicly available. At one point, the mission commander, John Young, was unaware that he had a hot mic. And, well, I'll just let you listen to what he said to fellow astronaut Charles Duke. I got the parts again. I got them again, Charlie. I don't know what gives them to me. I think it's bad since I really do. I, mean, I haven't eaten this much citrus fruit in 20 years. And I'll tell you one thing, in another 12 days, I ain't never eaten any more. So, of course, the press reported this. And because farts are always funny... Everyone had a good laugh about it. That is, everyone except for Florida Citrus Mutual, the organization representing Florida's citrus industry. They issued some official statements saying that the astronauts were using artificial citrus drinks and not wholesome Floridian OJ, part of this complete balanced breakfast. So citrus is not to blame, and they would like you to please continue to buy their products. And that was true. 
the flatulence wasn't caused by fruit. It was the potassium. See, potassium is used in another enzyme pump in the digestive system. It's the hydrogen potassium pump. Your stomach acid is kept nice and acidic by an enzyme that pumps potassium in and hydronium ions out. The hydronium quickly dissociates to regular water and free hydrogen ions. Having free hydrogen ions in a solution is what makes it acidic. In fact, pH stands for power of hydrogen. So all the extra potassium the astronauts were taking in caused the hydrogen-potassium pump to overwork, which gave them the farts. But their heartbeats were good and steady, so at least they solved that problem. There has actually been a great deal of research into space farts by NASA because they pose a safety hazard. Methane is a flammable gas, so having a container of people emitting flammable gas on top of a rocket could conceivably pose some problems. But the amount of methane the Apollo 16 astronauts produced didn't cause a fire, and the astronauts didn't experience any arrhythmia. Question 14. Did the potassium in your diet affect the taste of the food, and did it cause any other problems? That's a very good question, and I'm not sure we're qualified to uh to say. We'll have to get back and talk to everybody. I, I don't I don't think it uh, I didn't notice it being in there as far as taste was concerned. And I don't think anybody else did. Yeah, this is one of those things where you have to wait and take a look at uh, our post flight medicals and see what they come up with as our body potassium level. That's really the part that they're trying to work on, and I'm afraid the guys on the ground have a lot more data than we have on our physical condition, other than the fact that we know we feel good. Yeah, I think I think we've uh, been very fortunate to do as much of the mission as we have, considering uh, considering how much uh, we got slowed down there. And I don't know whether potassium uh, had anything to do with it or not, but if it did, I'm sure uh, grateful that we were taking it. You're listening to part two of Nothing So Hidden, the story of Apollo 16. On FM, online and on TuneIn 24-7, this is 88.3 Southern FM. Where you are listening to The Space Show. Play the jukebox on the moon. Hope they've got a jukebox on Ever since the first American manned spaceflight in 1961, it had been the rule that only other astronauts could talk to the astronauts in space. At one point, whilst Apollo 16 was on the moon, the Honeysuckle Creek tracking station in the Australian Capital Territory was relaying the communications between the moon and mission control in Houston. When the link between Houston and Canberra was lost, this presented John Saxon with a problem. He could hear the astronauts trying to call Houston, but they could not hear Houston. John Saxon was the Honeysuckle Operations Supervisor. Now, sitting inside Orion and having breakfast before their second moonwalk, John Young and Charlie Duke were discussing with astronaut Tony England 
in Houston the upcoming moonwalk. Then the link breaks due to a fault in the United States. In order to inform the crew what is happening, Saxon pushes his press-to-talk switch to send his voice to the transmitter. And so history was made as John became the only Australian to speak to someone on the moon. The audio from Orion is of very poor quality due to the problems they were having with Orion's steerable high-gain antenna. Now, I've edited out long periods of static in what was originally an 11-minute exchange. In this 2-minute, 45-second edit, listen carefully, and you'll hear John Young telling John Saxon to quaff a swan beer for them, and when Saxon doesn't understand, Charlie Duke repeats the request. Then he goes on to say they don't care about Houston and that the honeysuckle guys are nice to talk to. Saxon invites the astronauts to Australia and promises to keep the beer cool. So listen close. Really 
this exchange was picked up by the American press, who highlighted the reference to Swan Lager. The brewery got hold of the story and thought it was a marvellous publicity. They sent each of the astronauts a crate of beer. You know, they talk about the astronauts being heroes, and that I won't deny. But I reckon the guys at the tracking stations who sat through days of static trying to help the astronauts are just as big heroes. Oh, and one more thing. John Young and John Saxon did share a swan lager in Canberra. Well, it took the astronauts two hours to prepare for their second moonwalk, and they finally egressed at 3 a.m. And that last comment was a reference to Young as Br'er Rabbit in the Joel Harris story back exploring in space where he felt he belonged. The second moonwalk lasted almost seven and a half hours, beginning at 2.45am and finishing at 10.08am. The astronauts drove 11.1 kilometres. Again... Tracking was done by Madrid as the moon set at Honeysuckle Creek just 30 minutes before the EVA began. Likewise, the third moonwalk would occur as most Australians slept. Starting at 1.26am, it lasted 5 hours and 40 minutes until 7.06am, by which time many Aussies were up and on their way to work. This time, Duke and Young had driven 11.5 kilometres. Over the three moonwalks, the rover had driven 26.8 kilometres and the two astronauts had collected 95.8 kilograms of lunar samples. Now, having stored these samples aboard the lunar module's ascent stage, it was time to leave the moon. After all the mission rules... When it came down to the wire, did you land with helmets on or helmets off? Uh, everybody landed with helmets on. We were completely uh, gloved. We had gloves and uh, and helmets uh, on the ship system, uh, environmental control system. And the reason was if you touched down and the window popped out, uh, you wanted to be able to survive. So anytime, uh, uh, anytime like when you undocked, uh, you had helmets on uh, and you were fully suited uh anytime it was a, something where you could lose pressurization uh due to an impact or a, like a land hard landing uh then or the undocking command module and lunar module you were uh completely suited uh with uh, gloves and helmets so that you was you would survive that was John Young in our Southern FM studio responding to a question posed by Peter Owood of the Space Association of Australia. Well, liftoff was at 11.29am on that Monday morning, some 175 hours and 35 minutes after they had lifted off from Cape Kennedy. Now, Charlie Duke was very, very excited to leave the moon. Years later, in Canberra, John Young gave this description. We didn't stay on the moon forever. We parked that good old 
uh, rover 100 meters behind the behind the lunar module. The uh, lower part of the lunar module stays, the descent stage and the ascent stage goes. That is, if the engines light off. And we knew that there are about 200 ways that the ascent stage engines could fail to light off. We always thought of that as 200 ways to become the first permanently inhabited lunar base. <laughs> Fortunately, our engines did light off. And that's what it looked like right after they did. You're looking down on that lunar surface. It's about 3.9 billion years old, very old surface. In the foreground up there is a descent stage. Back there is a rover. Right behind the descent stage is about a 30 meter crater. You can tell that because the footpr footprints of the footpaths of the descent stage are about 10 meters across. So we just missed that. Uh, we just missed that 30 meter crater. People often ask, why did you miss that 30 meter crater? President Kennedy said in 1961, he said, in this decade, we're gonna send a man to the moon and return him safely to earth. The part about returning him safely to earth kept us from hitting in that crater. As I said in the first program, John Young was a man of few words, but he, he had a sense of humor. Uh, so were the astronauts worried that the engine of the lunar ascent stage might fail? It takes five minutes and 30 seconds for the lunar module to get from the engine ignition into orbit. And Charlie Duke and I are proof positive that people can hold their breath for five minutes and 30 seconds. <laughs> Which is quite appropriate since Young's crewmate was Charlie Duke. That same Charlie Duke that was the capsule communicator during the Apollo 11 landing. Altitude, velocity, light, in air, down, 220 feet, 15 forward, 11 forward, coming down nicely, 200 feet, 4.5 down, 5.5 down, within 60, 6.5 down, 5.5 down, 9 forward, 20 feet, 100 feet. Three and a half down, nine forward, five percent. 75, 875 feet. Guys looking good, down a half, forward. 60 seconds, lights on, down two and a half, forward, forward. At 30 feet, down two and a half, picking up some dust. 30 feet, two and a half down, straight shadow. Four forward, four forward, drift into the right a little, down a half. 30 seconds, forward, just contact light. Okay, engine stop, Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger Twain. Tranquility, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. The Orion's ascent went well, and at 1.35 on that Monday afternoon, it uh, docked with the command module Casper, which was being piloted by Ken Mattingly. To avoid crew work overload, it was decided to delay the transfer of moon rocks to the command module and the jettison of the lunar module until after the crew had slipped. Question 11. To what extent did fatigue affect your performance? For example, do you feel that you would have been capable of a full 7-hour EVA-3 liftoff and limb jettison all in the same day? I think that had been pushed a little. Question 12 uh, for each of you. Probably, we could probably have done it, but I think I'd have really been pushing it. 
By the time many Australians were attending their Anzac Day dawn service, the astronauts had completed the transfer of moon rocks and photographic film from the lunar module to the command module. At 6.54am, the lunar module was jettisoned. The command module continued to orbit the moon until 12.15pm when its main propulsion engine was fired for 162 seconds whilst the craft was over the lunar far side. Due to the command module's earlier control system problems, Houston ordered the astronauts home a day early. In all, CASPER had completed 64 orbits of the moon. Unfortunately, the astronauts had set some switches in Orion incorrectly, so the planned deorbit as a seismic crash onto the lunar surface could not happen. Question 10. Could you explain the circumstances surrounding the failure of the lunar module ascent stage to deorbit? Uh, I think that has to be worked out when we looked at all the data uh, on the ground and uh, discuss it with the uh, flight controllers. Uh, At the present time, uh, I have no idea. No, I don't either. On the return journey, it was Ken Mattingly's turn to get some attention. On Wednesday, April 26th, Ken left the command module and floated to the service module. There, he opened and jettisoned some panels and retrieved a large film canister holding mapping pictures of the moon as seen from lunar orbit. He was 381,000 kilometres from Earth and only 68,000 kilometres from the Moon. The spacewalk began at 6am and lasted 1 hour and 24 minutes. The space show's Peter Owood had heard a strange thing that had happened during this deep spacewalk and wanted Duke to confirm or refute this yarn. Right here, In our Southern FM studio, this is what Charlie Duke had to say about it. People may be familiar with the the From the Earth to the Moon series uh, that that ran a few years ago. And one of the scenes out of that was one of the the episodes was about Apollo 16 and and Ken Mattingly losing his wedding ring in the spacecraft and it actually floating out of the hatch during uh, his EVA. And, And I believe you... It floated past you, and you grabbed it. Is that correct? Well, it—I uh, saw it floating out the hatch, and uh, and we'd been looking for this thing for seven days or so. And I—I I was down in the lower equipment bay, and when I got, uh, I was wedged in. And by the time I broke loose and floated after it, it had already gone out the hatch. So I reached for it, but missed it, and. Uh, so it slowly drifted out. The relative velocity between the spacecraft and the ring was just almost nothing. So it took about three minutes to float out uh, about three minute, uh, three meters and hit him on the back of the head. Uh, and uh, amazingly, it took a 180-degree bounce and came back towards the hatch. It took uh, three or four minutes to come back, oh, came back goodness. inside. And it floated right in front of me in the LEB, and I grabbed it. Oh, what a <laughs> great saving. It was an amazing story. That just sounded so much like Hollywood, but uh, yeah, it was true. It was true. It was yeah. As they neared Earth, the crew gave a televised press conference. Now, we've already heard parts of this, but here are some more questions. From his vantage point in Casper, passing high 
above Descartes, which is where the Apollo 16 Orion landed, could Mattingly see the lunar module Orion? Question 7 for Ken. Your observations of the landing site. Did you see the lunar module or the rover, and did you see any differences between Cayley and Descartes? Okay, that's, uh, that's two distinct questions. Personally, did I see it? Um, we never pointed the sextant at the landing site according to the flight plan because of the alterations we had. And there were two occasions. Once uh, when I thought I caught a glint of light, which I could not recognize as a limb, but which came from the location and where I think the limb probably was sitting. And it's very close to the position on my map that uh, you folks read up to me. And once as the uh, rover was starting up on Stone Mountain, I just happened to be looking as they went by, and I think you were on the shift tank and told me that uh, they were hitting the uh, Stone Mountain. I looked over there, and about that time I got a, another little flash of light, which is about all with the 10-power optics we have that I think you could expect to see. At no time could you see something you could identify. This is Nothing So Hidden, the story of Apollo 16, which continues in a moment. 88.3 Southern FM, the sounds of the Bayside. There's an American flag on the moon. We never looked at such a pretty moon. It's just the beginning, you know we've won the race. Oh, glory will soon be all over the place. The lunar far side which can never be seen by us here on Earth, holds a particular fascination for most people. Question number eight, again for Ken. What were your impressions of the backside of the moon, and were there any surprises? Now, the impressions of the backside is something I tried to collect uh, from the time we got there until the time we left, and uh, I'm still mulling that over in my mind. Uh, got a lot of uh, transcripts we're going to have to read before I can psych it all out. But in general, the impression I have is that the material on the backside, when you look at it on a, as small a detail as I could look, looks to me like it's very much like the material we find on the front side surrounding most of the big craters. The uh, thing that looks different is that the backside is devoid of these large uh, basins. We don't have the large maris. There's very little mari. In fact, on the backside, the only mari we saw was uh, really post-TEI we could look back and see a bigger area, but our ground track didn't pass over any Mari in the daylight. So it took a while to psych that out, but I think that was a major difference was the absence of these large basins. And on the backside, we see some prizes. Well, we went up looking for, with a suspicion that we might find material similar to the uh, Descartes formation located in several areas on the backside, and indeed, I think we did. I think we saw an awful lot. I think we saw a lot that looks exactly like the Cayley. I think the uh, things that I saw that were uh, probably the most surprising thing was uh, on the side of a crater called Guyot, which is just to the north and a little west of King Crater, which is right about the eastern limb of the moon when you look at it from the Earth. We saw a, a big uh, hole, I'll call it a crater, in the side of, this, of the wall of this crater, and it appeared that there was material oozing out and on our last couple of revs, we passed almost directly overhead, and it looked like it was filled with a pool of material, and this material had run down the side. And uh, that's a formation uh, typical of things you see like in Hawaii, 
something I have not seen anywhere else on the moon, nor have I seen a picture of it. And uh, what of the Cayley Descartes region of the moon where Apollo 16 landed? The second part of that question was, did you see any differences between Cayley and Descartes? Yes, I think there's a, a distinctly different uh, morphology involved in these two units. Uh, our pre-flight training uh, is a little different in impression than what I think I saw. And again, uh, we have, like I say, 10 power resolution. I think the the real answer of what this material is is going to lay in uh, analyzing the data post-flight. We have some good film records, and I think the, when you put that together with the rocks we picked up, we'll have a pretty powerful story that will explain a lot of the things we don't know now. But I think that uh, there are sections of material we call Descartes, particularly the material that makes up stone and smoky, and that stuff runs all the way south down to the old Descartes crater for which the region's named. And that does look texturally entirely different from the... Uh, Trans-Earth injection is when the command and service module's engines is ignited to propel the craft out of lunar orbit and onto a trajectory towards Earth. One of John Young's comments puzzled the reporters back in Houston. Question 15. For John, what did you mean when you said morale went up a couple of hundred percent after the successful TEI? Was it low? Yes, no, not particularly. It's just, uh, <laughs> it would sure be low if you didn't get off the TEI burn, I can tell you that. <laughs> Again, John Young, um, rather brevity of comment there. Well, there was one general question that the press wanted to know about. Question 12 for each of you. What do you hope to tell your grandchildren as your most memorable moment of your trip to the moon? Well, I'll start with that one, uh, Hank. I have two impressions. Uh, the, the first is the dazzling beauty uh, of Descartes, the surface. Uh, it was just uh, one of the most awe-inspiring sights I've ever seen. And secondly, uh, on the EVA, uh, when you look away from the Earth or the moon, uh, it's just the utter blackness of space. It really is black out there. Time number 53 said that. Well, I guess I'm next, and I uh, I thought it, I knew someone would ask that question, and uh, I've been asking that question, too. And I don't think I can put an impression. There's so many that we've crammed in in the last 12 days. It seems like each one comes on top of the other one, and the immediate response that you come up with is, that's the most fantastic thing I've ever seen. And in a lot of respects, it really is. There, there have been so many events and so many sites that in my case, I'm going to have to sit and think about this one for a long time before I can ever pick out one. And I'm not sure I'll ever be able to say that there was a unique thing or a most memorable event. The whole thing has been a, just one series of very impressive and uh, I hate to use the word, but I don't know anything else except to say it's fantastic. I think Ken's got the answer. I think we've seen as much in a in 10 days as most people see in 10 lifetimes. And we certainly have enjoyed it. And uh, what would they tell the crew of Apollo 17, which would be the final Apollo lunar landing in December of 1972? Question 16. For each of you, based on your experience, do you have any recommendations right now for the crew of Apollo 17? Yeah, I recommend 
and they enjoyed as much as we did, I'm sure they will. But I tell you, we really have we really haven't had a lot of sights to see. I'll admit that in a lot of cases we worked hard, and uh, and I suppose the people on the ground were able to tell that. But we got all the support in the world from the uh, MCC Houston. I I mean I could uh, tell from every decision that came up from the ground that there'd been a lot of work put into it, and all around the country that there were a lot of wheels turning and. Uh, and people working late hours and uh, solving these problems. And uh, I'm just really happy that uh, Ken, Charlie, and myself got to do this. And uh, I think it's a wonderful uh, experience. That was the last question, John. We thank you very much, and thanks for the kind comments. In 1971, it had been proposed that a joint space mission be conducted with the Soviet Union. An Apollo spaceship would link up with a Salyut space station. The mission was dubbed the International Rendezvous and Docking Mission, and engineers were busy designing the docking apparatus. Question 13. From an astronaut's point of view, would you discuss the possible operation, operational difficulties, besides language, to be overcome in the proposed joint U.S.-USSR manned space flight? And would you have any suggestions to make? From an astronaut's point of view, I, I would uh, not feel qualified to discuss it other than to say that if language is a problem, I'll be glad to learn Russian. I think uh, Charlie and Kent feel the same way. Well, that proposal morphed into the Apollo-Soyuz test project, in which Apollo 18 docked with Soyuz 19 in 1975 in Earth orbit. Well, back to Apollo 16. On Friday, April the 28th, Apollo 16 entered the Earth's atmosphere and parachuted to a splashdown in the Pacific Ocean, some 2,400 kilometers south of Hawaii. Another remarkable thing we did was come back to Earth very fast, 44,800 kilometers an hour. The temperature that you see there, that white hot glow, is above 3,000 degrees C. Inside the vehicle, it's 20 degrees C. That's really nice. <laughs> now, we knew that we had a very good guidance system. It would land you about a, it would land you in the Pacific Ocean, and we were aiming off Samoa, and we landed about a mile and a half from where we are aiming at, which is very good. We had other ways to do it. Uh, you could even use the G-meter and get back. If nothing else was working, you could fly back by the seat of your pants. Unfortunately, uh, when those things weren't working, the uh, places you could land at got larger and larger and larger. But we knew from practice, at least I knew from practice, that I was at least good enough to hit the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> And you land in the ocean using the parachutes. My old instructor in the airplanes, he says, uh, never jump out of a good airplane and never use a parachute unless you have to. And there we were using them all the time. <laughs> and it worked. They all three worked. Yes, that was John Young speaking in Canberra. Well, let's have a little bit of music to take us out. This is Moonwalk by Moon Taxi. And uh, 
even in 2005, the moonwalks were inspiring people, and uh, the vocal is by Laura. I lost my sunshine while running away 